0: Tonight we'd like to talk about one phase of the activity of a very great and good man, St. Augustine of Hippo, who died fifteen hundred and twenty-four years ago this month. Catholic and Protestant authorities vie in proclaiming their incalculable debt to St. Augustine, the man who, to quote a few of them, laid the foundations of Western culture who stands between the ancient world and the middle ages as the first great constructive thinker of the western church and the father of medieval catholicism or again dominating like a pyramid antiquity and succeeding ages among theologians he is undeniably the first and such has been his influence that none of the fathers scholastics or reformers have surpassed it or another says the greatest doctor of the church another calls him the true creator of western theology Another says, in whom, in a very real sense, medieval thought begins and ends. His philosophical historical work remains one of the most imposing creations of all time. It posits a capacity and originality of mind which none other possessed, either in his own day or for a thousand years after, wrote Alfred Norton. Well, far be it from us to pass judgment on such a man or his works. We shall consider tonight not how St. Augustine acquitted himself in his great task, but only what that task was. From what we have already quoted, it would seem that St. Augustine's great significance lies in the final fixing of a new orientation for the church. It was to him more than to any other single man, says McGifford, that the spirit of classical antiquity gave way to the spirit of Middle Ages. The Christian theology and philosophy of the Middle Ages, according to Grabmann, perhaps the, more, the foremost authority on the subject, is in form and content almost exclusively Augustinian until late in the 13th century. And even then, the world historical achievement of St. Thomas was the synthesis of Augustine and Aristotle. End of quote. For the medievalist Coulton, Augustine is the man who closes ancient thought and begins medieval thought. It is he, writes Ferdinand Lott, who set the church irresistibly on the course which he has followed to the modern era. And another says upon, well, this is uh, Harnack now, Upon Augustine, Petrarch and the great masters of the Renaissance formed themselves, and without him Luther is not to be understood. Augustine, the founder of Roman Catholicism, is at the same time the only father of the church from whom Luther received any effective teaching or whom the humanist honored as a hero. End of quote from Van Harnack. Many have called Augustine the first man of the modern world. The historian Trilch calls him the last man of the ancient. Apparently, Augustine is to be respected before all things as that rarest of all humans, a founder and creator. Grabman says he was the true creator of the theology of the West, just as Oregon was the founder of the speculative theology of the Occident, end of quote. Trelch also describes Augustine as continuing the work that Clement of Alexandria and Oregon had undertaken two centuries before. The names of Oregon and Augustine are often linked together and with good reason, for each devoted his life to the same project, namely the working out of a Christian theology which he personally could accept. We've already talked about Oregon's allegiance to the schools and how it conditioned and inspired his whole effort to develop a theology that would be intellectually respectable. St. Augustine was, if anything, even more a child of the schools than Oregon, who was far more austere and independent a character. For 20 years, Augustine absolutely refused to accept the Christianity learned at his mother's knee. However powerful were the sentimental attachments to it. Because, as he explains at great length in the Confessions, it simply could not stand up to the arguments of the schoolmen. He tells how in his youth, after reading Cicero, he would laugh at the prophets. And how from the very first, the pagan schools had taught him to abhor any suggestion that God might have a body. It was instruction like this, he says, that convinced him that the Christians could not possibly be right. And this is the significant point. Augustine never changed the ideas and attitudes he inquir- acquired in the schools. He did not turn away from them back to Christianity. Rather he built them firmly and finally into the structure of Christianity before he would accept it. He never came around to accepting on the one hand the naive beliefs with which he charged the Christians nor on the other hand did he ever swerve in his allegiance to the Platonists. According to Professor Grabman, the whole explanation of Augustine's tremendous influence on scholasticism and the mysticism of the Middle Ages lay in the single fact of his being the greatest Christian Neoplatonist, that's a quotation, whose life work was the Christianizing of Neoplatonism. Augustine has described, as few others could, the tension and agony of a 20-year deadlock, a struggle within his breast, Grabman calls it, between the teachings of the schools and the teachings of the Christians. And in the end, something had to give way. And it was the church. It was Augustine, in Lot's words, if we recall, who set the church irresistibly on the course which he was to follow for the future. It was not the church that drew Augustine into her orbit. Or rather, let us say this is the classic problem of the three bodies in which the orbit of each alters and is altered by each and both of the others. Augustine, as our experts have declared, brought forth a new Christian theology when he solved the problem of which should prevail, the prophets or the philosophers, by deferring to both, uniting them into a new and wonderful synthesis which has been the object of endless scholarly panegyrics. Augustine, wrote Reinhold Seeberg, laid the foundation of Western culture when he fused antique civilization and Christianity together once for all in a single mighty mold. Reitzenstein declares that Augustine's life work was the program of a reconciliation of antique civilization and Christianity whose synthesis still determines our culture, end of quote. This fusion of classical and Christian heritages was the culmination of a long process. All the Christian writers, from Justin to Gregory of Nazianzen, and from Minutius Felix to Jerome, used the classics to explain, to enrich, and to defend Christianity, wrote Father Combes in his valuable study of Augustine's education. And this fusion of classic and Christian culture attained its perfection in the work of St. Augustine. Note that the trend begins with Justin and Minutius Felix, Christian converts who had been thoroughly indoctrinated by the schools before ever joining the church, and who remained fiercely and unshakably loyal to the schools to the end of their lives, regarding themselves as the real or esoteric Christians and poo-pooing the others as uneducated and uncritical rabble. We've noted already how these men thought their fine heathen educations would be a great boon to the church. This is the group to which Augustine belongs. Father Eggersdorfer has shown how he remained up to the end of his life completely a child of the schools. Augustine himself calls the adoption of pagan education spoiling the Egyptians. And in his famous De Doctrina Christiana, written at the end of his life, he presents his program for sending the church to school with the rhetoricians and philosophers. In making his perfect fusion of Christian and classic knowledge to produce a doctrinal system which he and his intellectual friends could accept, Augustine, to quote Father Combes again, uses the ancient theodicy, that's the justification arguments for God, metaphysics, morality, and politics. He often seems to reproach himself for doing this, to be sure, but the protests of his heart are silenced before the implacable dictates of his intellect. It is his desire to endow the church with a doctrine so solidly constructed that she will never again have anything to fear from her enemies." End of quote by Combes. That is a remarkably revealing statement, which deserves some examination. From the first quotation of Combes, we learned that the idea of reconciling Christian with pagan ideas was one that had been current among the intellectuals of the church for a long time. It was anything but the blinding flash of inspiration that some would make it out to be. It was, in fact, a creeping sickness in the church. The idea of a supersynthesis had become an obsession in the schools, where work on encyclopedic summons of all knowledge had long since brought all original research to a complete halt. In his pre-Christian days, Augustine had displayed a passion for this kind of activity, and he never left it, or rather, it never left him. Next, we learn from Combes that Augustine was not at all happy about what he was doing to the Church. He often seems to reproach himself for this, says our author. Why should he reproach himself unless he knew that there was something fundamentally wrong about his program? Monsignor Duchesne opens the third volume of his early history of the Christian Church with this remark. In uniting itself closely to the state, the church under Theodosius was not making a good match. It was wedding a sick man, soon to become a dying one." End of quote. We might paraphrase the sentence to read, in uniting itself closely to the learning of the state schools, the church under Augustine was not making a good match. It was wedding a sick man, soon to become a dying one. The two weddings are actually phases of the same movement. Theodosius' work of consolidation and Augustine's were going on at exactly the same time. Theodosius died in 395 when Augustine was well along in life. The year he became a bishop, in fact. Uh, Classical learning was a very sick man in Augustine's day, and nobody knew it better than Augustine. Many authorities have remarked how the saint constantly denounces the arts of the schools while he constantly practices them, because he must. This is a fatal inconsistency, and it's been immortalized in the story of Saint Jerome, Saint Augustine's great contemporary and friend. We have letters exchanged between the two men. They died but ten years apart. Jerome in a dream was chastised by an angel with the awful accusation, you are not a Christian but a Ciceronian. And after he awoke, Jerome went right on being a good Ciceronian. As did Augustine to the end of his days. In a recent study, Maru has shown Augustine's own education to be that of a decadent age, as he says, and has pointed out that the only change St. Augustine made in introducing pagan education into the church officially was to make the courses even more simple, superficial, and streamlined than they had been, thus contributing to that, I'm quoting now, that lowering of the general level of civilization which already all around Augustine announces the coming of the age of the barbarians. End of quote. Well might Augustine reproach himself for what he was doing, but he had no choice. The protests of his heart, says Combes, are silenced before the implacable dictates of his intellect. What are the implacable dictates that thus override his conscience? With St. Augustine, what was he forced, being forced to do? It is his desire, Combes continues, to endow the church with a doctrine so solidly constructed that she will never again have anything to fear from her enemies. Never again, to be sure. In the past, the philosophers could pick Christian doctrine to pieces. They could show you in black and white that God never could have a son, or that since he was the totally other, nothing could possibly be in his image and so forth. As Peter remarks in the Clementine recognition, Simon Magus could always give him a bad time and usually win the argument, but that didn't worry him. The ancient saints were not impressed by the pompous schoolmen because they had their testimonies. It was because revelation had ceased that Augustine was driven to come to an understanding with the philosophers, who were now feared and respected as possessing the only available key to knowledge, whence this new attitude yielding to the implacable dictates of the intellect. The world of St. Augustine's day was willing enough to become Christian, since the emperor's approval and compulsion had made such a course both safe and popular. But the new Christian world community was not willing to fulfill the conditions necessary to receive revelation, not by a long shot. We can best describe the situation by another uh, quotation from Monsignor Duchesne. Long distances separated them, he's talking about the Christians of uh, St. Augustine's Day, from the spiritual enthusiasm of the early church now everyone was a Christian, or nearly everyone, and this implied that the profession involved but little sacrifice. The mass of the community was Christian in the only way in which the mass could be, superficially and in name. The water of baptism had touched it, but the spirit of the gospel had not penetrated its heart. Upon their entry into the church, the faithful invariably renounced the pomps of Satan, but neither the theaters nor the games were deserted. It was a subject on which the preachers uttered their most eloquent protests, and all to no purpose. Augustine himself has much to say on this thing. Was it really the church that was overcoming the world, Duchesne asks? Was it not rather the world which was overcoming the church? End of quote. Whoever was winning, in St. Augustine's day, the people of the church no longer had testimonies. From now on, they insisted that the gospel be proved to them by intellectual arguments and clever demonstrations. Augustine himself says he wanted to be just as sure of its truth as he was sure that four and three make seven. Like Oregon, he wanted to put the doctrine of the church on an intellectual basis, which was the nearest thing to certainty that he could ever get. He was, says Arnold Lund, the well-known English Catholic, the first of the fathers fully to realize the necessity for a rational foundation of the faith, end of quote. And Professor Grabman reminds us, that in his theological explorations Augustine had almost no predecessors and for the most part was the very first man to experience the intellectual difficulties of these questions, end of that quote. For 400 years, during which the philosophers constantly made fun of them, the Christians had failed to realize that their faith should be founded on reason and speak the language of philosophy, whence this astounding oversight. Why must Augustine, at the end of the beginning of the 5th century, mind you, be the first to see the light? Obviously, as we have often pointed out on other evidence, the early Christians had a revealed faith and were not interested in things reasoned out by men. Augustine wanted to endow the church with a solidly constructed doctrine, says Percombes. Hadn't Christ and the apostles done that already? It was certainly not their intention to work out a system that would please the schoolmen. Just before he was put to death, the Lord told his disciples not to be afraid because he had overcome the world. That was as far as the ancient saints would go. They made no attempt to win popularity with those who would not accept the gospel as it stood. The apostles were instructed where the people would not accept their teachings simply to depart and go to others, not to change those teachings under any circumstances into something the world would accept. But that is precisely what St. Augustine did. He, and not the Lord of the Apostles, is Gra- in Grabman's words, is the true creator of the theology of the West. What well, to come down from the days of Revelation. Let us summarize what Father Combes has told us. One, Augustine found the church without a solid doctrinal foundation. Two, he took it upon himself to steady the ark. But who gave him the necessary knowledge and authority to do it? Where did he go for his information? Combes tells us that. He went to the pagan schools. He took their theodicy, metaphysics, moral teachings, and politics, and worked them into his system. Is that the proper source for Christian doctrine? That question worried Augustine, too, but he had to go ahead with his project because the times required it urgently. And what was the world clamoring for? A theology that would appeal on rational grounds alone to a Christian world, which was, as Duchesne puts it, Christian in name only, and which had forgotten the meaning of a testimony. The wedding of a sickly philosophy of the 4th century to Christian doctrine could only take place after Christianity had been once for all definitely divorced from the gifts of prophecy and revelation. St. Augustine fully deserves his title of the man who changed the whole course of world history and of church history. He found himself in an intolerable situation, and he made the best of it. It is a situation, and not the man, that teaches us what hard necessity and fateful decisions faced the church once the gifts of revelation and prophecy were withdrawn.